Hello, welcome to Better Worlds, a podcast exploring geek culture across mediums. I'm your host, Matthew. I'm Dustin. And I'm Trevor. Today, we are going to be talking to you about one of our uh, personal favorite topics, dinosaurs, specifically the news and uh, scientific developments generally that are surrounding them as of late. Uh, but before we get to that, I think we had a few items that we wanted to follow up on just with uh, other geek conversations that are happening around and about, and these do not pertain to dinosaurs. So if you only want to hear about dinosaurs, you can fast forward ahead. You don't want to do that. <laughs> you want to listen to this part. But you don't, because you want to listen about dinosaurs, because they're awesome. Well, and you want to listen to the other geek conversations. That's true. You come for the whole package here. Trust me. It's good. With that being said, um, well, uh, one of the things that was in the news recently was it dealt with the trench run yeah. on the original Star Wars. And I suppose we could defer to our resident Star Wars expert to enlighten us on any uh, misconceptions we might have had regarding the trench run. Okay, so this all started with a blog post from, or rather, it started with a tweet from Todd Vaziri, a uh, graphics effects artist. Um, he tweeted uh, about a year ago that he had just noticed something in A New Hope, and he wasn't going to tell anybody until 2017. And then the other day, he published this blog post about the location of the trench run and it got shared in a lot of places. So I think I saw it on Twitter. Dustin, you retweeted daring fireballs link to it. Correct. And where did you see it, Matthew? I originally saw it on IO9. Okay. So this made quite a buzz. Um, apparently a lot of people were surprised to realize that the final trench run in the movie did not happen in the equatorial trench of the Death Star, the big one that you can see running all the way around it. Were you guys both surprised by this? Yes, I was. Um, I was until it. I thought about it, and then I was like, you know, that, that makes perfect sense. You see them fly, like, that's the part that ships dock and stuff in. It's not the, <laughs> like, it made, it was just something I'd never given too much thought to before, and I was like, oh. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think the article made some good points of why people might think that it's the equatorial trench. Um, one being that the Death Star doesn't, from a distance, doesn't have any defining trenches other than uh, the equatorial trench. Also, the X-Wings, whenever they are going, at, starting their trench run, it looks like they are flying toward the equatorial uh, trench. And... From my perspective, uh, he showed the clip of uh, when the Rebellion is looking at the information that R2 brought, the graphic of it zooming in on the Death Star. Every time I've watched that, I've always just assumed they are zooming in on the reactor uh, vent, because I guess I just kind of my brain auto-completed where that was going because I knew that eventually they're going to be showing that a torpedo would go down the vent and detonate inside the main reactor. However, whenever he brought it up in the article, it was kind of 
clear that that's not what they're showing. But at the same time, it's a lot of zooming in and I don't know, it's not the clearest graphic of I, all that to say, I can see where people yeah. would be confused and that's part of my confusion. Okay. So the idea of the article is a lot of people had the impression it was the big equatorial trench that you can see from a distance. Um, as Dustin said, it kind of outlines why people had that impression. And um, the part where it shows them kind of flying towards the trench, that's before the trench run that it shows them flying towards the equatorial trench. And I think that that's actually just them flying towards the station personally. Um, I was surprised that I didn't realize so many people thought it was the equatorial trench myself. Uh, Cause the thing to my eye is covered in trenches. The thing I always wondered was how in the world did they even find the trench? Like, I guess they had <laughs> coordinates and stuff, but I just imagined how lost I would get if I was trying to find the one little trench. They did have the plans. Yeah, they had the plans, but like if you're in your X-wing flying around this giant thing, like I'd, I'd get super lost. More, more reason for people to think that it's the equatorial trench because that is very clear. That's obvious. That's what your eye is drawn to. Okay. Th that and the, the firing dish. Yeah. I, I guess I always assumed the equatorial dish or sorry, the, the equatorial trench was way too big to be the one in the final trench run. Uh, but I, I guess I'm glad it's cleared up for a lot of people. <laughs> if anything, this is a very good object lesson about how hard it is to maintain a point of reference in space. Yeah. It's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> the enemy's trench is down. Or their reactor vent is down. Okay. So with that being said, we also did want to follow up on another Star Wars related piece of news. And that is that the name for Episode 8 has been announced. Drum roll. The Last Jedi. <laughs> Trevor, would you like to make a point about correct singular and plurals <laughs> right here? Sounds like you want me to. I do want you to. The plural of Jedi is Jedi. What? So uh, before we talk about that, what do you guys think of the title? Like, does it sound like a cool title to you? Meh. It's certainly... Uh, I, I get what they're trying to go for with it. It has the panache that makes you think like, whoa, what do they mean? It's got like multiple potential interpretations and it has this dire like, wait a minute, the last one, are they killing off the Jedi? Which I guess they assume no one watched the prequel trilogies anymore, but the, or the prequel trilogies, the prequel trilogy in which in fact, most of the Jedi were killed off. And um, anyway, it, I don't know if that even answered the question. It seems pretty close to the return of the Jedi. Um, and two movies after the Jedi returned, they are leaving. I don't know. I do like the progression that you get in those, the three most chronologically recent movies, Return of the Jedi, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi. It's like, man, the Force hates the Jedi, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> the Force is only awake for a small amount of time. It's going back to sleep. So I don't hate the title as much as I hated The Force Awakens when I first heard it and still hate it, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think that title makes any sense. But Trevor, there was an awakening. Didn't you see I, the movie? There was an awakening. Yeah, I just don't. I read that book. Something about the title of The Force Awakens just doesn't 
sound compelling to me. But The Last Jedi, I can see it being a good title, but it sounds like it should be the title for the third in the trilogy to me. What would you want it named? I have no idea. <laughs> That's a, I've I've never had like expectations for titles of Star Wars movies before they're announced. I've never had expectations or theories or anything, to be honest. Are you trying to tell us that you don't have you don't know intricately the plot of this next movie? Well, I wouldn't be able to tell you if I did. <laughs> um so as Matthew brought up earlier, Jedi can be plural, so it's not necessarily referring to one person. It could be talking about, for instance, Luke and Ray. Um, I think when some people first heard the title, their question was, is Luke getting killed or maybe even Ray is getting killed? And like, it's so somehow one of them is going to be the singular last Jedi. Um, I don't think it necessarily even has to mean that because it could just be saying Luke does more things in this movie and he has been the last Jedi for a while. He's even called the last Jedi in the opening crawl to the force awakens. My personal money is going to be on the fact that they might, it's going to be handing the Jedi torch to Ray and that she's going to do something different from being a Jedi. Like she will set up a new order that won't be called Jedi, but will be force users that have lightsabers that do it kind of differently could be it's been a while since i've seen the force awakens are we told what happens to all the other jedi that luke trained we're given the impression that they're all dead again yeah yeah that's what i thought the idea was that he's literally the last jedi at that point because kylo ren okay so what you were saying about the force hating jedi sounds very legitimate now <laughs> but I mean most of them died before the awakening <laughs> every time we say the awakening I think of the Kate Chopin book oh dear <laughs> R-rated Star Wars <laughs> she's going to swim out into the, the ocean so there was already much ado about Luke being the last Jedi or the first Jedi in a way surrounding the original trilogy or some of the older books, the pre Disney books. So in some ways it kind of feels like it's just rehashing that old theme to be saying he's the last Jedi or Ray or whoever else is the last Jedi. It's like, I, it kind of feels like we're just doing the same stuff over again. So really, it's not like they would do that. <laughs> no, nothing well, like I that. I mean, I can hope that it'll be more interesting than that but that last movie was completely original yeah uh, i found star killer base to be very motivating and not a rehash of something they've done several times before death their star, the death or star. It, <laughs> it's no secret that i liked rogue one way more than i liked the force awakens and i really hope that they step it up in the last jedi and it doesn't feel I don't know. I know a lot of people really love The Force Awakens. It did its job of getting people excited about it who hadn't been excited about it, but I just wish that it could do some other things better at the same time. I'm surprised they're not calling it The First Order Strikes Back. <laughs> uh, well, that's something to be grateful for. I guess. I'm glad they're not calling it The Second Order. 
weren't most of the first order like decimated by you know their planet blowing i don't know I, well that's why this one would be called the second order <laughs> who are they going to fight if the first order is gone i guess yes the second order that i just want to see like two movies on where it's like and the 11th order will not be taken down <laughs> <laughs> they're they're going to skip the second order and go straight to the third order well i i don't know if we really have anything more to say about the title it could mean a great number of things a great many things. <laughs> the best titles are the ones that mean more than one thing simultaneously. And I would hold up The Return of the Jedi as an example of a great title because in one way it refers to the Jedi Order returning as Luke becomes a Jedi. But it also refers to the return of Anakin Skywalker as he's redeemed. So that, to me, is a really great title. I don't know if The Last Jedi will be as layered as that. And not all of the Star Wars movies are, but at least a few of them have a couple interpretations. The Phantom Menace is actually one of the better Star Wars titles. I know that people don't like to hear good things about The Phantom Menace, but it refers, on the one hand, to the Sith reemerging and nobody knowing that they're pulling the strings, but it also refers to anakin being the bigger menace even though nobody really knows it yet and how like attack of the clones talks about a literal war involving clones attacking and how no, it attack of the clones is multi-layered too because it looks like it's just talking about the fact that the clone wars start and that this army is attacking the separatists but but then the clones attack it also refers to the fact that the clones are actually uh an instrument being used to help destroy the Republic, even though they're actually the army of the Republic. So that even that one is multi-layered. And then the clones attack. And then they attack, yeah. Also, I think it refers to the fact that attacking is happening from clones and that clones are attacking. Okay, fine. You guys disagree with me. I think it's a multi-layered title. It has nuance. <laughs> <laughs> what the... This is probably not the time for the conversation. Didn't episode three have a different title initially and they changed it late on? Uh, I actually don't know about that. The re-return of the Jedi. I remember seeing pre like early production stuff where it had a different, like a slightly different name. I think it was still something. Are you talking about Return of the Jedi or Revenge of the Sith? Revenge of the Sith. Okay. Because Re Return of the Jedi was originally called Revenge of the Jedi. And there's some memorabilia out there that goes for a higher price because it has that name on it the, no this actually had like this was promotional still stuff they had that had a different working title at some point that i remember a friend showing me now i'm curious but that might just be for further research shall we go into the main topic of discussion we had for today what was that again well i'm googling this now <laughs> i said for later trevor <laughs> Our main discussion was going to be about dinosaur news. Star Wars, a history of title <laughs> announcements. <laughs> Should we just let Trevor do this? Yeah, let him do it. You got me started on Star Wars. You're going to have to take the reins if you want it to go somewhere else. Dustin and I can just... Okay. A lot of fans guessed that episode one would be called The Beginning. Well, thank goodness that didn't happen. Okay. The Beginning? That... Okay, let's move on. 
So we're going to talk about several dinosaur-related news items that we have just been percolating about um, here and there. Matthew, they're they're dead. What what more news do we have? Well, science is ever progressing, even for historical facts, such as the untimely death of our beloved dinosaurs. <laughs> But as we go about this, we wanted to clarify a few terms that we we talk about dinosaurs and we'll use semi-technical names for them sometimes. Uh, with two terms we really wanted to clarify just for anyone listening that so we didn't lose you, being theropod and sauropod. Dustin, would you like to discuss those? Uh, sure. Sauropod is the long necks um, and theropod are the meat eaters. Or sharp tooth dinosaurs. <laughs> so th- yeah, theropods are anything like a T Rex. Um, I think technically, don't raptors fall in theropod? Like anything that's yeah. I think general... theropod is a pretty broad strokes uh, classification for a bipedal carnivore. Yeah, it's got that roughly same body plan and are carnivorous. Whereas the sauropods, as Dustin pointed out, are things like. A brontosaurus, a brachiosaur, a diplodocus, the the four-legged quadrupedal giant plant eaters. The big boys. So yes, those are, if we use those, and if we use any other term that you're completely just flummoxed by and you, for whatever reason, don't want to Google it to find out what it was, (laughs) feel free to leave us feedback and say you need to stop talking with all your fancy dinosaur terms that we don't know and we will apologize and probably address it later we like twitter so we'll be we'll give you an answer real quick you can hit us up on twitter at betterworldsnet or email us at feedback at betterworlds.net and actually if you give us a reason to respond to you with dinosaur gifts we will probably be very happy to do so (laughs) are there really that many of those oh we'll find them okay i know of one the dinosaurs dancing I'd forgotten about that. So it's also worth mentioning all of the links that we discuss in the upcoming conversation and the things that we just talked about, like the article about the Death Star Trench. They can be found in our show notes at betterworlds.net slash podcast slash four. That being said, let's delving into the first news item we have for you. And I think this is, you might have seen this come up recently, but I think this is one of the more interesting uh, dinosaur news things we'll discuss. They have actually discovered, uh, I forget where it was discovered, but they have discovered a preserved tail with feathers on it from a small, tiny raptor-like species. Point of clarification, they found it preserved in amber, which, if you've seen Jurassic Park, might ring a bell. Yeah, this is as close as we're going to get to finding a dinosaur flash frozen and all the so this has like all the soft tissue preserved, whereas normally you're just seeing the bones or fossils that have slowly been preserved through the process of fossilization. And a cool thing about this tale was that, um, well, it's from a small theropod dinosaur. Um, The article that I read was not sure that the scientists were not sure what species exactly it was. They had it narrowed down to a few options. Um, Matthew pointed out that they are, the options were mostly in the raptor classification of dinosaurs. Um, 
the cool thing about this tail, other than that it's preserved in amber and we can see the soft tissue, is that it has feathers on it. Big surprise. And I think that's just wonderfully evocative of how much we really don't even know about dinosaurs. Like we draw up pictures based on the bones, what we think we, what they think they would look like, but there's so much that's just lost behaviorally and um, non-skeletal features that are just hard to reconstruct. So any tiny tidbits of data we can get on that is like invaluable because they're, again, it's really easy stuff to break down and lose and gives us a more full picture of what dinosaurs would look like, or at least some dinosaurs would look like. But we've known about the feathers for a while, right? Yeah, we. it's been... So what is special about this? Well, these... I feel like this is the first time that we've actually seen the feathers as mm-hmm. opposed to imprints of feathers or yeah, things it, like that. Oh, okay. So there's actually... They could even use... Um, I forget. I don't know. I'm going to botch whatever the term is. Like spectrography to figure out what the color on these feathers is at taking out the amber effect. They said it was kind of a chestnut brown with a white underneath. So whereas before we just, like Dustin said, had impressions, so you can say, yeah, it had feathers, but think of how many different colors birds have of feathers. Like, knowing that it's feathers gives you the texture of it, but not, like, what the creature is going to look like running around on its own. Got it. So up until now, we had only seen imprints, but now we've got the actual feathers themselves for the first time. Mm -hmm. And having a 3D model of something is always better than having a 2.5D impression of it. Sure. And this brings out two more interesting facts, is that the the type of feathers, when, when we see artist depictions of dinosaurs now with feathers, a lot of people probably picture, you know, bird feathers, flight-looking feathers. Uh, the way that these feathers were uh, constructed is they resemble more the down of a bird, like a duck or anything like that. They are not intended for flight, or they would not be useful for flight. Um, they're kind of wispy, uh, almost like seagrass, if you think, can think of that, or down. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's a simpler way of looking at it. Another aspect is that for years, people have thought, well, we don't know what dinosaurs looked like. A lot of artists would draw them with boring colors because that's, they were basing things off of reptiles, and a lot of reptiles are not super colorful. There are exceptions out there, but they would uh, depict them as brown or green. And then more modern artists said, well, they could be colorful. We don't know. And they were drawing, uh, depicting them in brighter colors. This one is the first time that we've actually seen what color a dinosaur was, at least as feathers. And I don't know, brown is not especially... Um, attract. I don't know. Exciting. But one way or another, now we we have we're not just making something up to kind of fill in the blanks. We right have at least some sort of data that's telling us this is how it is. I saw something a while back where an artist had done this project where they just looked at the skeletons of different modern animals that we're all familiar with and took the same approach that people do when they're trying to draw dinosaurs just as a way of showing how our conceptions of dinosaurs may be inaccurate. So I I don't remember the specific animals, but like maybe they had like 
a picture of a bear, but they drew it with like almost no body fat and like really tight, more reptilian skin just to kind of give the idea of <laughs> how our ideas of dinosaurs could be skewed. Well, and even like an elephant skull, yeah. when people saw elephant skulls, they thought that was a cyclops. There's nothing on the, the bone itself that would indicate that the elephant has a trunk. And that's the most predominant feature. Yeah. Yeah. So have either of you seen those drawings? I have not. No, I'd like okay. you to send that. I'll, I'll try to find that for the show notes. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to, cause it was several years ago. Another great example is go at, if you want to go out and look up what a skeleton of an owl looks like. So different from what an, like an owl is very fluffy with <laughs> lots of bulk and feathers and it. You mean their skeletons aren't fluffy? They're, they're skeletons you'll look at and you'll just be like, oh, I don't like owls as much now. <laughs> yeah. And of course, there's the infamous sharks that people see the skeletons and think it's a skeleton of like a plesiosaur. Really? I've never heard of that. Yeah. I mean, there's the, there's like a photo of them pulling one of these carcasses up on like a Japanese fishing boat. And it was passed around for a long time as like the fishing boat had caught a dinosaur or something ignoring the fact that it's cartilage oh i think that wasn't it like a goblin shark or something uh it might have been a goblin shark but yeah i mean it was this was not just a skeleton but um a very degraded carcass yeah and trevor can you tell us what a plesiosaur is uh it's a sea long neck <laughs> <laughs> it's like messy yeah messy yeah it's <laughs> sea long neck. <laughs> <laughs> the long necks of the sea <laughs> Um, another thing I want to touch base on, just given that we're talking about dinosaurs that we found information on that have feathers, I would say the majority of the ones I've seen tend to be in the, uh, Velociraptor, Dromaeosaur, oh, that's probably one way, Dromaeosaurs are like Velociraptors, that's more of the generic family name, but they tend to be in that, uh, that family of dinosaurs that they've actually found impressions on. And one, I've started to see a lot of art that incorporates them in on Tyrannosaurus rex and dinosaurs that are a lot like Tyrannosaurus rex. As far as I can tell, that's an inference that people are making. They haven't actually found anything that indicates they had feathers. It's a good guess because I think they're semi-closely related. But as of right now, they're, it's a, it is, just a guess so that's something i wanted to bring up because but they've only really found them on the smaller ones they've only found them on smaller ones and then i think there's some point when i was trying to read a read up about it and see if they had found anything on that that the answer was we're basically taking a guess on this um but i thought there were also some points that a like they think that maybe larger dinosaurs didn't really have a ton of it because when you get to being a huge creature thermoregulation isn't as important like where you would need the insulation like that so it would almost be detrimental to have a big crop of feathers but there might have still been i don't know i could see it going either way i'm just trying to point out that we don't know based on the evidence we have okay is there anything about the size that would make preservation of feathers more or less likely um insofar as it's probably harder for bigger creatures to be preserved? I would think so. I think the preservation of feathers depends a lot upon the environment in which the animal died. Um, 
it has to be conducive to either making these imprints or the creature had to be small enough to have part of its tail caught in amber. So a larger animal might be scavenged or things like that. And it, yeah, this is kind of my hypothesis. I'm not 100% sure on this. And yeah, and so much of just actually being able to fossilize relies on miracle conditions of the skeletons having to be buried quickly enough that things don't break down naturally. And so that's usually you find a lot of fossilization occurring in like a river, a wet area or the place it was previously rivery and wet because you can have like a flood that covers things up or you have a mudslide or it, it's usually just stuff like that. So the conditions are really that's why fossils are so hard to find because the conditions have to be just right for them to happen. Something else that Matthew and I were talking about prior to starting the show was that a lot of artist renditions now are incorporating feathers into whatever dinosaur they are depicting. And granted, artists have a difficult time because they're trying to draw something that they've never seen. Um, so they're kind of going off of whatever the popular culture opinion or the most recent scientific opinion of what these creatures might have looked like. But I kind of feel like we might be going overboard with the feathers because there's, as uh, Matthew mentioned earlier, there's no definitive evidence that Tyrannosaurus rex, for instance, had feathers. There's no reason to say that it didn't either. We don't have definitive proof one way or the other. But coming from an evolutionary standpoint, it doesn't make sense that all dinosaurs would have feathers. Uh, they had to start somewhere. Um, and the fact that we have proof that there were feathers on dromaeosaurids, they are a specific lineage of dinosaur. They're not, you know, a precursor of all dinosaurs. Um, right. So. So, and I think it's a, it's not a bad idea to try looking for, uh, going forward with the assumption that that's a distinct possibility on anything that's kind of closely related to the dromaeosaurs. So just generically kind of looking at theropods and thinking feathers are a possibility, that's not a bad heuristic to go forward with. It's just like if you start throwing feathers on a, a diplodocus, it's I, you're definitely going overboard. Right. Can you remind me what Dromaeosaurus covers? Dromaeosaurus, Troodon, Velociraptor, Utahraptor. Darn, I wanted to say Utahraptor. <laughs> yeah, lots of lots of the raptors and some of raptor-related Okay. Dinosaurs, but don't have raptor in the name. Got it. But again, they're smaller bipedal uh, dinosaurs, carnivorous theropods. I mean, some of them would be decent sized, right? Yeah. Utah raptor is definitely decent sized. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. But they're not like tyrannosaurs in that family. Right. Okay. I think Utah raptors are trending towards some of the smaller tyrannosaurids. Right. But they are also the largest. Right. Maybe not the largest, but definitely the larger side of dromaeosaurids. I mean, they look at those and think they were kind of built for speed, which tyrannosaurs could be fast, but they weren't built for like super fast <laughs> uh, speed strikes. And a lot of scientists now think that ter specifically Tyrannosaurus rex would maybe have been a scavenger as opposed to a hunting predator. 
I've seen it go back and forth on that. Like some people yeah. then saying it's almost equal opportunity. Like it will go for the scavenging, but right. I mean, like lions do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. it's not like that makes sense to me. Well, another news item that has come up is uh, apparently a new running theory for something that had helped do in the dinosaurs from a longevity standpoint was they're now thinking that their egg hatching was relatively slow. So obviously if you have the longer a species takes for vulnerable infants to exit out of the vulnerable infant stage, the longer, the higher the chance you're given them to die. Yeah. <laughs> and not be able to go on. When I saw this headline in our notes, I thought it was referring to the actual hatching time, like the amount of time that it took them to break out of the egg. Oh, it's talking about the, the incubation, the length of the incubation period. Yeah. Right. It is. Yeah. I might have misspoke. You no, know, I mean, you said the same thing the article did in the headline. Mm -hmm. It's just the headline could be taken a couple different ways. Yeah. What this article was talking about is that there was on a protoceratops and another dinosaur that I cannot remember. They've found intact eggs um, that have skeletons inside, and they did some kind of scanning to see what the skeletons look like. And there, these infant dinosaurs had egg teeth, I believe they call them. Yeah, and that's birds have that too. Right. Uh, which is, it's a protrusion that would help them break the surface of the egg to help them hatch. Uh, as the dinosaurs would grow, these egg teeth would grow um, with specific time intervals, kind of. And, and so they could measure the size of the egg tooth and get a, a sense of how long the incubation period was. Similar to if you cut a tree down, you see the rings. That tells you how many mm -hmm. years it's been growing. The egg teeth develop in a similar manner. They have, they would get a quick surface that would harden, and then the next month or week or whatever, another surface would appear and harden. And um, so it would grow in a, a similar fashion. What they found was that these dinosaurs had, rather than an incubation, incubation period of up to three months, which was uh, previous, what was previously thought, it they are estimating between three months and six months, uh, which is a f very long incubation period for animals, I guess. Yeah, especially anything egg-based, like the because you have to think eggs are especially vulnerable. Uh, it's and we don't know behaviorally how dinosaurs interacted with their eggs. So, well, some of them we do, I guess, but, um, in the, so it could be that some of them were lay, like a lot of reptiles will lay eggs and then kind of say like, that's it done parenting and take off. So if that was like this setup, then you're talking about something that's sitting there for several months unattended that could easily have a predator come along, eat the egg. You could just have a natural phenomenon, crush the egg, get yeah, having a long incubation period isn't the best sometimes. Right. This all sounds like good news for oviraptors. <laughs> right. However, there's evidence that many dinosaurs 
would care for their nests um, between Protoceratops and Myosaurus are two that I know off the top of my head that there's evidence that they would care for the nest, that the young would stay in the nest for extended periods of time. Um, the article made an interesting point of, and Matthew talked about this earlier, that this could have been a contributing factor as to why dinosaurs went extinct after whatever extinction event happened, which the most popular theory is an asteroid impact or meteorite impact. Um, but the reason that they were vulnerable to, to that is that animals with a long gestation or incubation period, animals that are slow to reproduce are more vulnerable to rapid climate changes than animals that have quick reproduction cycles. Um, so they're less likely to, to make it out of that change and survive. Right. With that being said, uh, we're going to move on to some news that pertains specifically to developments about dinosaurs in the United States. So one of them, and this is a, an interesting fact when you think about the size of the this place, uh, they actually just discovered the first dinosaur fossils in Denali National Park. So personally, when I, I just think of A, the size of Alaska, but then B, the size and grandeur of some of those parks, it's crazy that that's the first time anyone's come across fossils there. But then that's also pretty exciting to me because uh, the main place in the U.S. that we have found dinosaur fossils tends to be in the northern and western part of the country. So like Montana, the Dakotas, the Wyoming, Colorado, all of that part is where you're typically finding most of the fossils here. Uh, Alaska is very far removed from any of those. So that would suggest to me like a whole nother set of dinosaurs that you can discover up there. Um, it, I don't know, it opens the doors for a lot of possibilities. So I thought that was a really cool aspect of that. And then it's always just nice that uh, we've got these big preserved areas and you know they're going to be taken care of and that we can access them in a respectful research uh, fashion. So I I like that part. Did you guys have anything you wanted to add about Denali? Going off of what you had mentioned about where dino a, a vast majority of the dinosaurs have been found in the United States, it's been the north and western uh, states. Part of that is because of the geo geography of the time. Uh, the Midwest was an inland sea, and so yeah. you're not going to find dinosaurs in the ocean. Uh, and so a lot of the areas where we found dinosaurs were close to the coast of what that inland sea would be. Um, so it's not it's not as if that was thought to be the northernmost reach of where dinosaurs could dinosaurs could survive because it was too cold or anything like that. I don't want to mislead listeners into thinking that. Um, I do believe that the article said that there had been evidence of dinosaurs found in Denali, uh, like footprints and stuff, but this was the first time that they'd actually found skeletons. Yeah. Well, and there's always a, that's a big jump too, that you can find some, I don't know, there it, there are lots of places with footprints. It's just, again, because fossilization is harder to have happen, it's always a bigger deal when you find fossils. So Right. 
the article also talked about how these dinosaurs would have experienced greater climate variation just because of the seasons and that they would have had extended periods of darkness. And so that it's, it's kind of interesting to think about how varied these dinosaurs were. And they have actually found, um, and I think it's relatively minimal, but they have found fossil evidence in Antarctica. Correct. Which would have not necessarily, anyway, it, it, that's really interesting just because you, again, you get like the very extreme of, you're going to have periods of complete darkness and periods of near total light <laughs> that they have to adapt to. It's just interesting to think of like how those dinosaurs would be differently adapted to that than the other more moderate cousins who <laughs> live further south right, or north in that case. Outside of Denali, is there much knowledge of other places in Alaska dinosaurs being there? I don't know much about that. Okay. I don't. It's not something that I've ever heard a lot about, but it could be something that requires further research. If any listeners have feedback on that, we would love to hear it. And we'll give you a shout out if you point us in the right direction. Something else that I, about going back to the extended periods of light and dark, it makes me think, well, what were these dinosaurs like? What behaviors did they have? How did they adapt to prolonged periods of darkness? And so I think of, well, how do animals present day animals cope with those uh periods of time and i think polar bears hibernate through that time so did the dinosaurs hibernate as well like yeah there's just so many questions that we don't know hibernation or migration would be the two biggest ones and right i'd say either of those would probably be a possibility well and i've never heard of hibernation in relation in a uh, connection with dinosaurs before but that's it's an interesting concept that that brings up this raises another question for me in relation to the that other article about incubation periods. There's a lot of variety, even just among dinosaurs, right? Yes. We're making guesses, but yeah, they think there is. Yeah, so why do we look at an article like, or why do we look at a discovery like the thing about the time they spend in the egg and assume it applies to all dinosaurs? Well, they the I'm sorry, I probably wasn't very clear. With that article, they were comparing Protoceratops, which is a smaller egg, and a large sauropod, and its egg was you know twice the size of an ostrich egg. So they they are making an assumption, and I think they're wanting to study more species. But it's all it's hard to find intact eggs with right. A skeleton inside, you know, those those are very special mm-hmm. uh, circumstances that you're looking for. Okay, but the fact that they saw those characteristics in both the Protoceratops and the sauropod, they can make very loose assumptions that you know maybe this is a not uncommon characteristic. Okay, and just as a point of reference for listeners, Protoceratops is going to be what dog sized. Yeah, and uh, sauropods are generally several house sized (laughs) (laughs) okay so you're saying that there are these two that are pretty different already share this in common so that's why it's significant okay see i'm it's not that you're not communicating clearly i'm just assuming that you both know way more than i do and so i'm just asking questions no that's good no and that's helpful for anyone listening who would also maybe be wanting to make sure they're following along 
I'm hoping that my more uninformed perspective is of use to the listeners <laughs> just by asking questions. It's of use to me. And my axe. <laughs> <laughs> so going forward with our news stories, uh, and this is more of a news story from the past several years, but the Museum of Natural History, I think that's the correct term. That's a lot of people call it the Smithsonian, but it's the one that's on the National Mall right by the Air and Space Museum and the National Gallery and the Washington Monument. Um, the Natural History Museum there, or Museum of Natural History there, uh, actually closed their dinosaur wing in 2013. I want it 2014, maybe. Um, and they're undergoing this huge multi-million dollar renovation that is going to reopen the wing in 20, I want to say 2020 or 2019. It's one of those two. Um, I but think it's 2019. Anyway, it's, uh, you know, uh, like almost the the country's main dinosaur museum closing down that section for the better part of a decade so they can update it. Um, I actually, <laughs> and maybe this is a testament to me uh, being a little too into dinosaurs. When I saw the news of that, I had always wanted to go to DC and then that got me mobilized and I went to DC to be able to see the <laughs> uh, <laughs> exhibit there before it indeed closed down. Um, and it was actually a very comprehensive exhibit, but you could tell why they were trying to update it. They had a lot of stuff crammed into a relatively small space. And I think we've all been to this museum. Yes. Yeah. And the thing you're talking about is kind of a personal sore point for me because I visited Washington, D.C. A personal dinosaur point. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I visited Washington, D.C. last spring and once I already had the dates set and had my tickets and everything, I started asking Matthew questions about um, if he had any specific tips on how to go about seeing things. Cause I knew he had been there. And the first thing he said was, you know, that the dinosaur section is closed down. Right. And I, I had no idea. I just, I assumed that it wouldn't be undergoing a massive multi-million dollar renovation. <laughs> which was you know, silly of me, that, I guess that's an everyday occurrence in museums. And I, it, it, so they had their dinosaur section reduced to a tiny room with literally two things in it. A triceratops and a T-Rex cast? Yes. That being said, I think we all need to make a trek out to D.C. in 2020 yeah. and check out what the new thing is like. Absolutely. The day I was there, they also had the Hope Diamond exhibit closed. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was a great day to visit. The entire mall and the Capitol were also covered in like construction scaffolding. Congress was so out of session. I picked um, a great time to visit. It kind of worked <laughs> out because I ended up meeting Carrie Fisher. Um, oh, and, yeah. Uh, I can tell that story another time. But, you know, if I'd waited till 2020, I would not have run into Carrie Fisher at a memorial. So Too soon. It was, a des it was destiny. Uh, I guess it's a good thing I did that. It kind of worked out, but I didn't really get to see dinosaur stuff. But all you're ever going to see, like, once you see the new improved exhibit you're only going to see the potential better world of 
museum experience and you'll never have to know the relatively cramped stuff that Dustin and I saw. Yeah. Did you go before it shut down, Dustin? Yeah, I might have gone before any of you guys. I went when I was real little, but I don't remember it very well. I I was there um, before we graduated from college. Okay. Uh, and I was impressed impressed by the number of specimens they had, but it was difficult to maneuver through there because a it was a smaller room, and b there were just a lot of people. Um, so cramped is an accurate description of the experience, but it was nevertheless enjoyable because dinosaurs. To be fair, that entire museum is cramped because it's incredibly popular. Yeah. That was the one thing I went to that entire week in that city that was just completely overwhelming because there were all these school groups and everything, and it was just completely packed. See, that's why I avoided the Air and Space Museum because there was never a point where I even walked by there that there weren't at least three school buses worth of people exiting and entering (laughs) i had far fewer panic attacks in that museum than the natural history museum we also went at different times of year too true which might correlate to different parts of school curricula leading to different types of field trips also you didn't have to worry about seeing crocodiles in the air and space museum that's always a plus too did anyone else have anything on that oh yeah there's a lot uh so one of the cornerstone or the centerpiece i guess of the future exhibit is going to be a actual t-rex skeleton uh the museum already had a t-rex skeleton however it was a replica um it was not they were not actual bones they were casts of a previous a, a different specimen named stan i am not sure where stan currently resides I believe the St. Louis Science Center also has a cast of from Stan. Am I correct in that? I am not 100% on that. I'm 80% sure it's Stan. Are you talking about the giant animatronic thing? No, the skull that they have on the bottom floor. Oh, just the skull? Yes, which would be the same cast that the Smithsonian had. Okay. And the one that you saw. I believe it's Stan... At the Science Center as well. Uh, again, a, a replica of that that skull. Um, now they are getting what is known as the Wankel T-Rex, and they are now going to dub it the Nation's T-Rex, which I do not hold to, uh, because my allegiance is to Sue. Sue. <laughs> um, but this is an interesting story, because... The Wankel T-Rex was discovered in Montana, I believe. Yes, Montana. And it is owned by the Army Corps of Engineers because it was found on the land land owned by the Army Corps of Engineers. So, obviously, if it's found on that land, the Army Corps of Engineers should own it. I say that with a little bit of sarcasm. Uh, it's named the Wankel T-Rex because the woman, I believe it's a woman, who found it, her last name was Wankel. So in the same vein, the person who discovered Sue the T-Rex was named Sue. Kathy Wankel is the name of the person who found that T-Rex. And the same person who discovered 
Stan the T-Rex was, as you could guess, named Stan. They're really right. creative with this. Very creative. I I have – I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I feel about the Army Corps of Engineers owning a Tyrannosaurus Rex specimen. I don't see why they need that, and it should be in a museum. <laughs> it belongs which, in a museum. It belongs in a museum, which it's going to be for 50 years. That was pointed out in the article that they ha- it's on loan to the Natural History Museum for 50 years. It's not that they are giving it to the museum. They're loaning it to them. What are they going to do with it after the 50 years? <laughs> I hope that they re-up the loan, but – you know, who who knows what a future administration will do. Yeah, I guess they just wanted an out. Yeah, and th- they have two Tyrannosaurus Rex skeletons. Why? <laughs> and to be to put this in perspective for listeners, there are may- – I think I read there's maybe about 50 Tyrannosaurus skeletons in various stages of completion and wholeness scattered throughout the whole world. So – when you're holding on to one, I don't even know what. Well, and Tyrannosaurus rex is a North American species. Yeah. Well, no, no. I meant by whole world, like they've got the skeletons that have been discovered, right. scat, like moved about the whole world. Right. Um, Stan, I'm not even sure if we, do you remember what the relative like percentage of completion on him Are we is? talking about Stan or the Wankel T-Rex? The future nation T-Rex. The Wankel T. The Wankel T-Rex is about forty-six percent complete. Oh, I thought I was reading that it was in the top six or eight as far as completion goes. Um, it might be because most of them are not very complete at all. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I I've gotten different numbers depending on what article I read. As I'm looking to at Wikipedia, the, right? And the Wikipedia article that I shared with you guys has different numbers than other articles that I read. Uh, uh, because, for instance, on there, they say that Sue is, what, 80, 85% They complete? say 85. Whereas other articles said 90, and some places say, you know, 75. It, it just kind of varies based on the approximations. I've always seen 80, and I figure that's a good ballpark, because that seems to, that feels right when you go and see Sue the exhibit, and they show you what's missing. Or what they don't have. Like, it feels like 80% is about accurate. Right. And they have, as I think we said before, they've never found a 100% complete uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton. You usually don't find a 100% complete fossil just because, again, the degradation process usually kicks in and stuff is lost before it can mineralize. Right. For instance, Spinosaurus, we have a handful of fossil fragments. It's amazing how few... But uh, bone pieces we've we've uncovered of this dinosaur yet, you know it's it's making debuts and yeah. movies and stuff. It's just so incomplete. With Spinosaurus too, they make a big deal about like I think they discovered either teeth or claws, and then they did size extrapolation because they're like, well, compare right. this to T Rex, and it's bigger than T Rex. And my thought, my first thought I had was, imagine you had found a saber tooth cat. And you only found the saber tooth, and you're just like, this thing must have been enormous. It could destroy village, like, I, or look it, at a, a sloth. It's it has dis- disproportionately large claws. Mm-hmm. Um, but we digress. Uh, this story kind of reminded me of the documentary that I watched this weekend, Dinosaur Thirteen, that was talking about 
I was kind of disappointed at how little it actually talked about Sue, and it was mostly concerned with the brouhaha surrounding uh, the discovery of Sue and who the ownership rights, rights mm-hmm. uh, to the dinosaur. Um, that made me angry. <laughs> just... I think it's meant to. It's it's from CNN, and they're the p- same people that made Blackfish. I don't know if you ever watched that. It just cemented my horror of orcas. But to give you some really rough, basically one of the main guys who discovered Sue, just because, again, getting into uh, arguments with the government and the person owning the land who they thought they were buying the skeleton from, basically through got prosecuted for that. And one of them spent got sentenced to two years in jail for something that should have been three to six months, I think. Yeah, because the judge just didn't like them, <laughs> and he literally gave them more than the maximum set recommended sentence. Right, which seems like it should be illegal, but I guess if you're a judge and you tell people that what they're doing, a judge that what they're doing is illegal, they'll just laugh at you. I don't know, but that <laughs> was really like I, there was some injustice in there in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it was talking about how originally the Black Hills Institute, the the people that found. Sue worked for a private collector's company called the Black Hills Institute. And they had created a museum in Hill City, South Dakota, of different specimens that they had found in their travels. Uh, They were going to have Sue as the centerpiece for the Black Hills Institute Museum or I think it's Museum of the Black Hills or something like that. Black Hills Institute is what it is. That's where Stan is too. Right. The Well, the company is called Black Hills Institute, but I think the museum was called Museum of the Black Hills. Yeah. Um, should we get into the what makes Sue special? That's a good it, – it, I would assume a lot of people who are familiar with dinosaurs generally – have at least heard of Sue, but yeah, Sue is the most complete Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton ever recovered, and I believe the largest and the best preserved. Right. So, well, I guess that kind of goes with complete, but no, yeah, not they, necessarily. Like the quality of her bones, the preservation of her bones is better than other skeletons, and yeah. more bones were found. So those are two different things. Like even when they were pulling the skull out, it was incredibly well-preserved coming out of the rock. Like, you could look at it and think, wow, they won't have to do nearly as much touching up on that because there were... It was just largely intact. It was kind of impressive. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, Sue spent several years in crates in uh, a warehouse somewhere because of all this legal action. And eventually, it was d- determined that the rancher owned her and the government kind of put her up for auction. And the whole time I'm watching this, I'm thinking, thank God that she's at the field museum in Chicago. Um, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, the end of the story. So you're, yeah. And even the people who discovered it really wanted to try and it eventually went up for auction and they wanted to try to buy it back and bring it back to South Dakota. But they were then said, well, She's going to the Field Museum, and that's the second best place she could be. Yeah, well, they had a benefactor that had $1.2 million to spend, and the price surpassed that amount within seconds. 
yeah, it got to like 7.8 or something like yeah. that. It was crazy. And this was something I didn't know. The Field Museum purchased it with the help of Disney and some other company. I forgot McDonald's. That was hmm. McDonald's and Disney both chipped in to help buy Sue, which... Why? I have no idea on that. Because they're good companies, Trevor. I'm... Maybe they just wanted the pub... Like, McDonald's at least is based near Chicago, but Disney? They probably got some kind of rights to with promotions and stuff like that. To use t-rexes in their movies <laughs> i don't know i i wanted to do some research into why they they did that i haven't done that though let's just be glad they're using their power for good yeah go buy some yeah. mcdonald's and say thank you <laughs> and watch a disney movie so you mentioned that sue spent a few years in crates um i think the article we were looking at mentioned that winkle rex is also in crates right now in yes. a secret warehouse. Yes. I think, however, it had been on display in a Montana museum. And they they just disassembled the skeleton and are storing it in preparation of sending it to the museum okay. to be reassembled. Okay. I don't know why they're calling it the nation's T-Rex. I'm assuming it's just because it's in the nation's capital. Yeah. Are they renaming it? No, it's just going to be a moniker. Okay. I think they're upset they don't have Sue, is my theory. So they're trying to like make it sound... They can't say, we've got the biggest T-Rex, or we've got the most complete T-Rex. They can That's only true. say... they got to make got... it sound special. They want to make it sound like the bald eagle of dinosaurs. Which it's not. <laughs> what we're trying to get at is, if you want to go... Well, I mean, T-Rex, kind of. Sue's better. If you want to see a T-Rex, go to the Field Museum. Sue's better, but still, it's still a T-Rex. Full disclosure, so. I am currently as we speak, wearing my Sue t-shirt that I got this summer. I mean, we're probably all wearing a Sue t-shirt in our hearts. <laughs> well, I'm wearing it over my torso as we speak. Well, I'm wearing it in my torso, so there. <laughs> I have a Sue drinking glass, but I'm not using it right now. I have a, a tattoo of Sue's skull right over my heart. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I uh, have a T-Rex tooth that was given to me by Trevor, so... That <laughs> <laughs> counts for something right replica replica <laughs> what replica <laughs> you lied to me again stinson <laughs> <laughs> when i was a kid i bought a replica of a prehistoric shark tooth and my sister tried earnestly to tell me what the word replica meant but i wouldn't hear it and i spent probably a couple of years thinking i had a genuine fossil shark tooth from like one of those giant those were the happy years of innocence the megalodons yeah megalodon i think yeah and then i finally it really hit me what replica meant and i was devastated and that's when you lost your innocence yeah it's when i gave up on sharks i don't know is that an illusion for something that more sinister than i think probably that's when you realize that the world was a cruel place yes it was i felt like i had really been gypped by those hucksters at SeaWorld. Now, now, see, I would think you'd realize the world was a cruel place when you realized that that big of a shark existed at any point. No, I was all on board with that. <laughs> that was cool with me. Chomping on whales and such. I figured they were too big to get too close to the shore. I don't think whales existed when... The yeah, company. they did. Well, I mean, prehistoric whales. There were... There were prehistoric whales. 
there were, but the megalodons, they think, died out like dinosaur times and whales came around after dinosaur times. I was reading a National Geographic kids version to Janelle just a couple days ago, and it had a picture of the megalodon jaws, and it said, chomping on whales and such. Um, <laughs> well. That would have scarred me. <laughs> with, I can't argue with that and such. That was pretty authoritative. Okay, so in my defense regarding this replica shark tooth, the package was labeled authentic replica. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that it was that authentic that I really held on to because I did know what that meant. I want to get away with the selling the inauthentic replicas. <laughs> I just took a guess. This is literally a rock. <laughs> I think this I didn't do anything to it. This is a slice of pizza. <laughs> it was not that big. <laughs> My first thought with that was, how would something with pizza-sized teeth and be able to enjoy pizza? <laughs> Very carefully. Very daintily. Mm. Uh, and then, like, pizza rolls would be out of the question for it, because that just wouldn't even register as a blip. Shark? Do sharks have tongues? Yes. Yes. Because I'm just imagining if it had teeth that big and was trying to enjoy pizza, it would just like carefully hold out its tongue and let somebody set the pizza on the tongue. No, it wouldn't do anything carefully. It would just nom. <laughs> it's a shark. Well, they can't do anything carefully because they need, well, no, I think that's a myth about the, they have to stay moving to not die. Yeah. That's yeah. a myth. Speaking of science, what's our next article? <laughs> our next article is uh, something that I specifically wanted to review. It's about, uh, a dinosaur park in that's a little bit west of Colorado um, being rezoned right around it and they're possibly cutting into like basically well, like Colorado Colorado I read this whole article and I thought the thing was like just south of us oh, no, no you read the <laughs> nope yeah that's it said Jefferson County. Yeah, there Trevor Jefferson was a president that they named a county after in every state, pretty much. Oh, shoot, dang. Um, so yes, there's a they're wanting to uh, pave paradise and put up a uh, what parking was it? lot. Not even parking lots. I, I know guess, it's more, a, well, no, literally parking lots because they want yeah. to put in car dealerships right next to this. But um, so anyway, the it's for Dinosaur Ridge Park which um, I've actually been to and is a very cool, like completely outdoors thrust of a ridged mountain that's like literally right at the edge of the Rockies. Um, but in it, there's a huge exposed batch of dinosaur footprints. And then on the other side of the ridge, they've got, uh, you can see like the underside of where... Uh, some sar giant sauropods stepped in like the sand. It, this is area that used to be like a seashore, they think. So it was very sandy and all of that's compacted. So you can see underneath like the sand that was displaced from sauropods standing there. And they've actually, I think they said they've been able to use that to make rough estimates of weight, which is a cool data point that would be hard to get. Um, that you can see cross sections of a lot of, like when they were first cutting through the place, they didn't know there were dinosaur bones there. So 
they've got some exposed uh, stegosaur bones, I think, that you can literally, they just let you go up and touch because they're kind of ruined as specimens for anything but education <laughs> of people there at this point. But anyway, it's this, and then they've got by the visitor center, like a little bit of like some dinosaur models you can see and everything like that. But it's a very cool experiential dinosaur park to show what things are like before you could ever get to a museum to show like what a natural setting in which fossils are occurring. And, you know, it's uh, very kid friendly too. So I went there and it was this really neat experience and um, very pretty just set like right again in the very beginning part of the Rocky Eastern part of the Rocky mountains. Um, So the fact that they're even, I think that if I had that around my community, I would be saying like, this is a natural treasure. We shouldn't do anything to impede upon that. And they are just wanting to put in car dealerships right there. And that uh, <laughs> um, is just, I that flummoxes me. I don't know why you would want to despoil something that way. Yeah. I, I don't understand sometimes why people don't care about things. Like it, I, it's almost like you take for granted that you've got something really cool, like all these dinosaur remains right in your backyard. And then you're like, well, we want to get some economic development going on right by there so we can get rid of the natural thing. That's I don't know. It, well, it's like the people who looked at the redwood forests and said, gee, that's a great source of lumber. Let's cut it down. Yeah, that's insane. Which totally would have happened if the national parks hadn't been founded and all that work to protect them so right hooray for national parks yep right and i think this is just a colorado state park so it's not yeah yeah it's, it's a very it's a smaller one too so but hopefully the people there will continue to protect that because it's not like something like that can be rebuilt somewhere else right there's a big pushback from some local that was what the news was about was that there are local groups trying to preserve they like that do realize that's very important and they don't want to see that uh, taken away or diminished in any fashion. So shout out to good Colorado and Coloradans, Coloradans for that. I had a problem with this article, which is, was surprising to me because I'm all about dinosaur preservation and natural resources and, and stuff like that. I was reading this thinking, Oh, they are, you know, fighting for, dinosaur skeleton rights and keeping holding back the ever onward press of human development into things that they should treasure as they are. And reading into it, it turned out that the argument of the citizens was not that, Oh, you're going to destroy the fossils that are buried here. It was, you're going to pollute the night sky. This is one of the last places that we can see the night sky without any light pollution. And I'm thinking, really, that's that's what you're fighting for? And as I read the details of the the situation, it turned out that they didn't really accomplish anything. All they accomplished was in getting the aldermen to vote to not let this developer build Park, uh, car dealerships. It wasn't preventing any development. In fact, 
it now is going to be developed into drive through restaurants, big box stores, um, hotels, things of that nature. And I'm thinking it, it, it even said that the developer had worked to um, make it to where like the signs and stuff would be lower and dimmer than they typically would be to try to uh, preserve some of the uh, nighttime viewing. And they they got the alderman to reject all of that. But now what are they left with? They're left with more crappy development. So they didn't stop anything. They just changed the things that could be built there. Um, and it, it did note that they, they are going to continue to try to get it to be de- uh, downgraded in the zoning. But still... Like this wasn't a victory. This this was, I don't know. It, it seemed pointless to me. Now I'm imagining all of that development happening and the dinosaurs being incorporated into, like a putt putt course. Well, the com- the company was called Three Dinos, and so I don't know why I just shared that. That's not that's kind of irrelevant. Um. It would be really hard to make it up. I know that was semi-joking. Just because you have to literally go up on a mountain ridge to go around and see all this, it's hard to... It would be hard to do that. Hard to do what? It incorporate... To just be an intense putt-putt course. <laughs> <laughs> to make a putt-putt course. Like, you couldn't even... It's too steep to... Make, like, <laughs> there would be a par, like, 15, because the, you'd keep knocking the ball up and it would roll back at you. <laughs> yeah. Going into reading the article, I'm thinking, well, if we've got dinosaur bones that have been found in this location, it makes sense that there might be some in a location close to it. So that's what they're fighting to protect. But it wasn't at all their motivation. They just didn't want to. They wanted to still be able to see the the stars. That's kind of the double-edged sword of all development happening in Colorado at this point, because even when they, like, for instance, were building the Rockies Stadium uh, cores. Course Field, yeah. Course Field, which is just right in downtown Denver. It's even a ways out from the mountains still. They found Triceratops remains just like directly behind home plate, <laughs> which um, and then they that's why the that bit of trivia, I guess, that's why the mascot for the Colorado Rockies is a Triceratops because they discovered those bones when building the stadium. But and that's why the Nas- the Colorado Rockies are a National League team that I can tolerate. um and so that i'll have to look into this (laughs) um although some people yeah there are lots of people who seem to think that that's the most annoying mascot in the whole of baseball which i don't know where the non-believers why i don't know where they get that why would they think that was annoying just uh, people don't like fun um and i don't know there's a lot of there's so many other things that jump to mind that would be more annoying than that the but philly fanatic the philly fanatic was the first thing what I thought, the heck is that we don't even know what that is it looks like an amoeba or something anyone listening in philadelphia but sorry it's not as <laughs> bad as the <laughs> i mean obviously the best mascot is fred Bird, but there's actually a great um 99 invisible episode about the fanatic i mean it's it's about mascots in general but it talks about the fanatic a lot because he was like the the first mascot. You'll have to link that in the show notes because I want to listen to that now. Yes, I will do that, that is interesting. I had Not to say it'll make you like him anymore, but it just talks about the way that some people appreciate it just in 
sort of a historical, historical sense. Well, if you're putting it in that way, that suddenly makes more... In a historical sense? There were green suction cup face people? Developmental history. Uh, like, just the development of mascots and oh, okay. like the way they, they use <laughs> symbols to rally people around these I gotcha. teams. Yeah, before they really figured out how to make good mascots, it was just like the... It was the rough draft. <laughs> <laughs> he was a beta. Or you, I guess you could say he has seniority. Well, I mean, it's like if you looked at a logo and you said, that's a really dumb logo. And then somebody was like, well, actually, that's like the first logo. It's like, oh, okay. I guess it's interesting in that regard. I, yeah, I can see that. This was, I think he was the, I don't, I think he was the first like mascot, like in a suit kind of thing. Anyway, that that's <laughs> so far afield of for 99% invisible to discuss. It will be in the show notes. So now that kind of finishes up more, that finishes up our dinosaur news, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Did you guys have any response to my criticism of the Colorado people? No, I I would agree with all of that. Yeah, I would kind of agree with that too. I I don't understand why the land is not federally protected. It probably has to do with complex land rights and who and someone with a lot of money owning things and all of that. <laughs> I think the the area in question is in within the city limits of It's not Denver. What what's no, the city there? You're a little north and a little west at that point. Yeah, I don't know what this suburb is, but But I mean places get protected as historical sites all the time, so like why not this? Right. And so Dinosaur Ridge is a protected landmark, but they're not going to pave over Dinosaur Ridge. Okay. They're just uh they're just developing an area below Dinosaur Ridge that's close to Dinosaur Ridge. Okay. So you're not going. The people weren't trying to protect Dinosaur Ridge. They were trying to keep the development away from Dinosaur Ridge because right okay. now that, that area is zoned commercial, and so their ultimate battle is to try to get it downgraded to agricultural zoning, which would mean you can't build any developments there. But I don't know. At, at this point, it just seems like they they. Uh, threw out a decent compromise and have now a worse op- option before them, and now they have to fight even more to try to keep the thing that they wanted originally. I do also want to point out as a pure tri- piece of trivia that one of the parks right next to Dinosaur Ridge is called Matthews Park. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of this. <laughs> Matthew, I have a question. I was watching an episode of Reading Rainbow. It was in the early seasons about dinosaurs. And LeVar Burton goes to someplace in Colorado where there's just a sheer cliff wall with dinosaur bones sticking in in it. And people could watch the paleontologist working and trying to uncover these bones. Is this Dinosaur Ridge or is it a different place in Colorado? It is possible it's Dinosaur Ridge. I think with the dinosaur bones that are there, they're not at present trying to extract anything. Um, But that could be different a while back. Also, dinosaur... It's like Mecca for dinosaur remains in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So There's a city in Colorado called Dinosaur. All the streets are named after dinosaurs. It's way west. Yeah, I want to live there. (laughs) Um, one of the things too, that I wanted to point out was 
when I went to Dinosaur Ridge and there there was a part where you kind of rode in a bus up past a lot of the stuff they were pointing out and they let you get out and walk around a little bit. But the guy who was doing the tours was actually a paleontology graduate student. And he pointed out, he said that there were three places that in the world were considered like the best for geologists. Um, I guess he was speaking about geology generally at that point. And he said they were Iceland, Hawaii, and Colorado. I don't know if there's like selection bias there in terms of the group of people he worked with, but I did think it was an interesting statement coming from someone who is more or less in the field. I'm sorry. You said that was just specifically with the geology of those regions. Yeah, but I think he was including paleontology as a subset of geology in that sense. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of there being a lot of excavations in um, Hawaii or Iceland. That's why I think he was saying geology generally, because they both show developmentally how rock can be extruded and then sediment, like that type of stuff. Yeah, because, I mean, if we're talking specifically paleontology, then you got to list Mongolia as near the top. Right. Argentina in there, you know. Yeah, they do have a lot of, especially the Titanus, like all the biggest stuff you can find really in Argentina. Yeah, I I loaned you that book, uh, what was it called? Time Traveler? Mm Mm-hmm. And he talked about his excavations in Argentina and Mongolia. And what was it? San Diego? And I mean, it's just so much of it, like, we don't, we might not have even ever found the best place for fossils yet. We've just, since it's such a young field comparatively, because really, the first inklings of paleontology you only got in the early 1800s, and then you only were finding the first big specimens recognized as dinosaurs in the mid-1800s, which they were, like, displaying at, um like London back in the heyday of Victorian England. Yeah, in in the realm of sciences, it's a fairly new field. So, so much of it is just like this, the countries that were wealthy or affluent enough to have, A, the re, the, like the land resources for like digging around and looking for fossils, and then like the people trained enough to do it started doing it. So that's why you have so much development here was because we uh, it was a uh i don't know it, like a good uh intersection of having training and wealth and land to do it so i am someone who wants to see dinosaur skeletons what are some good places to do that it looks like season one episode six of reading rainbow it's called digging up dinosaurs and in it, LeVar Burton visits Dinosaur National Monument in Utah to answer your earlier question. Oh, oh thanks for that real-time follow-up. Dinosaur National Monument. Okay, so that was a really cool sight. Uh, uh, seeing all the the bones, they were there were sauropod and hadrosaur and stegosaurus bones and everything. So, so that would be to- a cool place to go. <laughs> But to follow up with Dustin's question, I would say that it, giving any potential listener a place that's right in the middle, um, so in theory should be more easily accessible by 
anyone in the country that has an excellent dinosaur exhibit would be the Field Museum. That's probably my at present number one recommendation of where you should go. Like they've got a good spread of dinosaurs. They've got it well explained, like accessible. Like I think anyone ranging from a kid to an adult is going to be able to appreciate what they've got there. You get to see Sue. They've got and that doesn't even do justice to like they've got a huge haul of like showing off all of the major uh, uh, genuses of that's not the right plural <laughs> um, of genies dinosaurs. <laughs> it's not genie. Um, but basically all the different families and body types you'll see of the major ones like triceratops, sauropods, obviously theropods. Um, they've got hadrosaurs. They have, I think they have a state, they have a stegosaur there. So yes, they do. They have an ankylosaurus skull. Yeah. That's important to me. <laughs> um, that would be my rec- number one recommendation of a plane. Like there's just a, you could go, you have to pay to get into the museum and you could just go and see that part of it. And you've gotten your money's worth, but then there's a whole bunch of other, uh, they've got like a natural history section or a, a natural history section in the sense of, um, lots of like taxidermied animals <laughs> that if you could see like a wide variety there, they've got some history sections. They've got a fairly extensive egypt section like it's a crazy Mm -hmm. crazy huge museum for yeah yeah, that would be my recommendation of where you should go for dinosaurs fun fact the first time i went to the field museum i got to see the dead sea scrolls nice fun fact i saw a lot of mythical creatures at the field museum with trevor (laughs) yes that was a temporary exhibit i also saw a really cool star wars exhibit there once but again, temporary. Actually, I don't think I told you this. When I went to the Smithsonian, not Smithsonian, the Natural History Museum in the Smithsonian, they had that um, mythic creatures exhibit there. I don't know how they built it exactly. Oh, that's the cool exhibit I went to. They had built um, a whole exhibit on and then a complete walkthrough recreation of the cave paintings at Lesco in France. Some of the oldest cave paintings in the world. Where was this? In the Field Museum. In like their special exhibit space. Oh, okay. It was super impressive. And I was, and because those caves are closed to the public now, that's as close as you're ever going to get. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It was really neat. When I was very young, I got a yellow plastic mug with a woolly mammoth on it that I have to this day. From the Field Museum. From the Field Museum. Okay. I was like, fun non sequitur. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet us if you want to see a picture of the mug. <laughs> no, I was just continuing fun stories of the Field Museum. Oh. There's one thing that kind of bothers me about the dinosaur section there, and that is I can't always tell if I'm looking at a a replica or an actual skeleton. Okay, let's talk about that. Uh, Replica versus actual skeleton. What are your guys' thoughts? Don't they usually mount replicas? Like, I was never under the impression that the things they have up are usually real because it'd be way too fragile and they'd be opening up to like something terrible happening and getting crushed and that like i always thought it was a replica yeah they've got sue on display though i think right uh there are rep i mean her skull is a replica most of her bones are the actual bones right the skull the skull that's on display on the main floor is a cast but the rest of the skeleton is actually there right they do have her actual skull on the top floor right um 
I the the Smithsonian article that we mentioned before made a big deal about how they were finally getting an actual skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And the writer likened it to, well, suppose they had a glass replica of the Hope Diamond. It's not as special as actually seeing the Hope Diamond. And I disagree with that because the Hope Diamond is not fragile. (laughs) These fossils, I feel like... and, And you're not doing scientific studies to learn more about the Hope Diamond. It's a diamond. I mean, we already know about diamonds. We could study smaller diamonds and have the same amount of information as what we would get from the Hope Diamond. I feel like these dinosaur skeletons, I'm perfectly fine with, and I actually, I would actually prefer that they display replicas and keep the actual bones away from the public back where scientists can do research. Because a lot of these museums, there are scientists on staff that are doing research and um, learning about the skeletons, not just showing them to people. It did not seem like a good comparison to me because the Hope Diamond or any diamond, kind of the point is the way that it shines and everything. And if you just pop in a glass replacement, it's not going to do the same thing. But with a skeleton Honestly, it's kind of hard to tell if you're looking at a cast or the actual thing sometimes, unless you are a scientist looking up close. But if you're just looking at it from the museum floor, like a cast passes pretty well. Yeah, I mean, looking at it, I would never have guessed that her skull is not the original thing, that it's a cast of it. Right. Um. So also, if we're finished with field museum stuff. Uh, continuing thing I wanted to throw out as a recommendation. Well, my oh. point about the field museum was the plaques in front of the different dinosaurs don't seem like sometimes they'll say this is a cast or this is an actual skeleton, but they don't always say which one they are. Hmm. So that inconsistency bothers you. Yeah. And so sometimes I'd be like leaning in trying to <laughs> see if I thought it was a cast or an actual fossil. And I, I was, I just wasn't sure. See, and I guess it, to me, that doesn't, I don't know, the distinction doesn't bug me as much because fossils already aren't the bones. They're a rock that took the place of the bones. Right. Mineralized version of it, yeah. Well, <laughs> that could be a big rabbit trail. But but still, replica is not <laughs> mineralized, yeah. I don't care if it's a cast, I just want to know. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, makes sense. But that, that's a pretty small complaint. So, yeah, let's move on to another recommendation. Oh, I had a different one if you guys uh, – do either of you had one? Well, I'd like to follow up or continue with the Field Museum. One additional thing is that if you do visit the Field Museum, make sure to go outside of the Field Museum. I think it's on the east exit, on the east side of the museum, is their Brachiosaurus, which used to be inside – uh, before they got Sue, and so Sue kind of replaced the Brachiosaurus. I vaguely remember that now. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I knew that I was missing something, but I didn't know where it was. Yep, it's the Brachiosaurus, and it's now outside, and it's very impressive. That's the thing that I remember the most from visiting when I was a little kid, and the last several times I've been there, I've been like, why is the thing I remember not here? Mm-hmm. And I think I was looking at one of the other 
sauropods and thinking maybe I was just shorter or something. I don't know. Everyone's shorter than a brachiosaur. Don't feel bad. No, I mean, maybe I was shorter <laughs> when I was looking at it before, and that's why I thought it was yeah, taller. I got what you were saying. I was just making a point that everyone's going to feel height challenge next to brachiosaur. Now I just kind of want to see basketball played by brachiosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> um. So now if we're at, are we, do we have anything else we want to say about Field Museum? I'm all out. Um, a second recommendation that was something I was actually really surprised about, um, was I found there was a museum of natural history at the university of Michigan. And I thought, okay, it's like going to be a college museum. It's going to be pretty small and humble. And I went and visited that. And for being a college museum, it had a much better dinosaur exhibit than some other museums (laughs) I've actually been in. So I was really impressed. Like some of the displays you'll look at and you're like, okay, this is a little older or dated, but they had uh, mammoth skeletons. They had allosaurs. They had some hadrosaurs. They had uh, some aquatic dinosaur related uh, like tylosaurs mounted flying from the ceiling. Um, they had pteranodons. Ter- they And they had like, these are all the things I'm trying to think of that were full skeletons. And then they had lots of like skulls and other things around plus that's just their main hall they had a little they had branches off that you could see um other dioramas of time periods and stuff and if again it was just for being a free museum on a not like a museum in and of itself just as a part of a major university i was really impressed with it so if you're anywhere around that and you got the chance i would recommend that as being something you could go and check out and learn more because it's free and relatively accessible. You just have to look at their website to find out hours and when they're open. And Ann Arbor was a, had a cool vibe to it too. I didn't do much more than e-lunch there and see that museum, but it was pretty cool. Prior to watching the documentary Dinosaur 13 on Netflix, which you can do, I kind of just assumed that if I wanted to see a good display of dinosaurs, I would need to go to a big name museum like the field museum or the Smithsonian museum of natural history or the American natural history museum, I think is the one in how they call the one in New York. Yeah. I think it's the American museum of natural. Yeah. It's something American museum of natural history. Um, so those are the three big ones that I think of, uh, with as far as, extensive displays and to some degree i i feel like part of what you're looking for is specimens you want to see skeletons but you also want to have some supplemental educational material and so videos plaques things like that are important too because they give you more information than you get just by looking at the bones you don't get a whole lot of information by looking at at just the bones you need need some kind of fun educational stuff. The Field Museum definitely has that. The Smithsonian had that. I've never been to the American Museum of Natural History. Um, However, watching this documentary, it opened my eyes to the fact that you can go to smaller museums like the Museum of the Black Hills and see great displays of specimens. So I would just recommend to the listener, if you 
see a museum like Matthew uh, at the uh, University of Michigan at that museum, check it out. You might see, you might be surprised at what, what you find. Yeah. And I've actually, this then led me to a rabbit hole of looking at other universities of blank in states that are nearby. And lots of them do have small, like smaller, but because their universities at least well plaqued and educational <laughs> um, exhibits on things, not necessarily natural history, but sometimes it's archaeology, sometimes it's art. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that I think not everyone thinks about because you almost think of museums as being these standalone things that exist in huge cities. So um, I do want to throw in that uh, something I've heard of as listed as a major uh prehistory fossil dinosaur museum that I cannot vouch for personally is the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. I have heard that that oh, has that's a very, another one, yeah. That has a very extensive and engaging exhibit, but again, that's something that's on my bucket list. I have not yet been there. Those those would be the top 4 as far as national museums, I think. Adding that in to the 3 that yeah, I Yeah, the West Coast really needs to step up. Come on, guys. And I I have been to the Museum of like Science and something and something the one in Denver that uh, had a big dinosaur section, but it was honestly like for being in Colorado, it didn't have as extensive of a section as I thought it would. Now, part of the reason might be because these East Coast museums are more established. That's true, and they had more moneyed interest behind them being able to acquire specimens for it so yeah that would make sense oh one thing for the museum in colorado though is when you enter they have a big i don't think it's a tyrannosaur it's a big tyrannosaur like skeleton there and it's posed a lot like t-rex from dinosaur comics which i loved (laughs) trevor what have been your favorite museums for dinosaur skeletons well as i mentioned the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History was a huge disappointment, but I visited at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's really good. It just you, people yeah, are I just visited at the wrong time. Uh, I would tell people visit there in 2020. Yeah, if we seriously, if we get some listeners that are stick with us up till that point and are interested, let's just have a big party and like all go visit on the same day and have our own group that everyone gets annoyed with versus all the other groups that are already in there that (laughs) (laughs) we'll make t-shirts and everything i do like the field museum i've not i don't know if i've been to a ton of other museums with good dinosaur exhibits i do have to say my main the one that is on my major i need to go do before i die is the american museum of natural history like that's one i really want to get to yeah but you gotta go to new york and that's not appealing I know these are not dinosaurs, but I really like mammoths too because they're giant mammals <laughs> and there is a pretty cool mammoth exhibit here in St. Louis. You mean at Mastodon State Park? No, at the, I can't remember what it's called. That, is was, it a the temporary, Louis, that was a temporary exhibit History at Museum? the History Museum. Are you kidding me? That was temporary? Yeah, that's a traveling exhibit. Oh my gosh. They constantly switch that in and out. Although, like I said, we literally have one in... Now, I don't think we ever mentioned that we were in this area, but just south of the St. Louis area, there is a Mastodon State Park that has a that 
dedicated museum. I've been <laughs> okay. there. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's small, but it's good. Does Mammoth Cave have anything to do with mammoths? I think that it's just because it's big. It's big. It's that okay. type of mammoth. Well, never mind that then. There is There are mammoth and mastodon skeletons at the Field Museum. There are mass. I think I said that there are mastodon skeletons that. Well, that's where I got my mastodon cup. Oh right, right. Or my mammoth cup. I forgot. There are mastodon skeletons at the University of Michigan, I believe. Wheaton College up in Chicago has their own mammoth. Didn't they discover that when they were digging, like constructing around there or something? Yeah, that's when they were building. I guess I can't remember his name, but he's sort of a unofficial mascot for them. I like when they take the time when they're building and they find stuff like that instead of completely just saying like, well, this is in the way. Let's destroy it. They take the time to at least save the remains. <laughs> yeah, they like set up a nice display for them and everything. Um, So that was, I think we kind of covered museums. Mm-hmm. Um, if people don't want to go to a museum, one of the things I obviously the next thing you'd probably recommend would be a show. Um, the kind of semi-classic at this point for learning about dinosaurs would be the series Walking with Dinosaurs. Um, it's from right around 2000-ish, I want to say. But it's really well done, covers a lot of different uh, dinosaurs in different places and times. And they give it a narrative sense from like little vignettes they've constructed using different dinosaurs so it's very accessible from a storytelling standpoint um i don't know i i would say it's a good way to immerse yourself and get a survey it's like a 100 level course at college yeah <laughs> on different stuff you've you may have seen different um quote-unquote documentary well i guess they're documentaries Documentaries that are trying to cover dinosaurs as if they are currently alive. Nature documentaries have a very unique feel. Uh, and Walking with Dinosaurs was the first one to ha- put that feel in a historical documentary. Um, so they they follow an individual animal or something like that and tell the story of that animal. Uh and there have been a lot of spinoffs since then, but mm-hmm. that was the original, and it, it was well done. Yeah, and there's uh, and it, as Dustin pointed out with the do- with the documentary that we Dustin and I watched before <laughs> doing this that was called Dinosaur Thirteen that told that story about Sue's discovery. Again, a lot of dinosaur documentaries trend towards that that they tell the like stories of stuff being found and like all the semi-political stuff about humans finding them that it, dinosaurs are there but they're they're more like a story motivator rather than having the they're story the be a, but yeah they're essentially the plot MacGuffin. um so you know that that's something you need to uh, and a lot of things when they're marketed like that will have like dinosaurs plastered all over them um you need to just if you're really wanting to find stuff to watch to learn more about it, be discerning on that front because sometimes you'll just get like, and personally I find it stuff about paleontologists doing things and the legal hurdles they might encounter being interesting, but it's not the dinosaur stuff in and of itself. Did you have any recommendations, Trevor? Um, no, I haven't been able to catch up on the documentaries. Well, I just meant like I haven't watched, walking with dinosaurs in a while so 
that was just anything you've seen that you felt was a good introduction to dinosaur stuff. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever watched a dinosaur documentary outside of an IMAX theater. Hmm. I'll throw out a tiny plug. I don't know where anyone, if I don't even know if they still market it. I think National Geographic has a thing called Dino Mummy that was a special that at one point was on Netflix, but that talked about how they found um, fossilized a hadrosaur that made that preserved a lot of the soft tissue and musculature like that had fossilized. And normally that just doesn't happen. They got like some skin impressions and things like that. Uh, and it's just all about like how they got over the logistical hurdles of extracting that, of like piecing together the information they can get from it. Um, and how that provides a more complete picture of it, but it's like a freak find and how everyone reacted to that. So that, that was also a very cool, um, that had kind of like a good marriage between like talking about the dinosaur and then showing a lot of the paleontological stuff that went into its discovery and like trying to piece together how it lived and stuff. So that would be something I would recommend if anyone wanted to look into it as well. Another one I'd like to talk about is from the the creators of Walking with Dinosaurs. A few years after that, they made that. They had a single run called Allosaurus, and oh yeah, that it, was good too. Yeah, it was covering you know Allosaurus, it, which is the it's a famous North American theropod. It's smaller than a Tyrannosaurus rex. It's the state dinosaur of Colorado. Yeah, they have a state dinosaur. Lucky. So does Missouri. They do? What's what's your state dinosaur? It's a state fossil, actually. It's like oh, a hadrosaur. Well, there's a difference between a state fossil and a state dinosaur. It's a, it's a hadrosaur. Oh, really? Dang. Illinois needs to step up their game. Do you guys have a state fossil? It's a Tully monster. Yeah, it's not a dinosaur. But it's better than nothing. <laughs> this is true. But anyway, that that would be a good one to check out. Only eight states have state dinosaurs. Yeah, it's something that we really, as a country, need to get more behind. Well, I mean, part of the problem for Illinois is that we were right in the middle of the of the inland sea, and so not going to have many dinosaurs there. Well, should we wrap it up? Yeah. <laughs> District of Columbia's state dinosaur is Capitalsaurus. Oh. <laughs> for when they become a state, you know. That's... Yeah. I don't know why it's listed on state name. State or territory, it says. Capitalosaurus? In the table. Capitalosaurus. Come on. I would be deeply surprised if any of the things that are territories at this point have dinosaurs. Just because so many of them are just like Pacific Islands. Maybe Puerto Rico would have something, but I kind of doubt that. <laughs> um. Anyway, well, that should be... Do we want to call it there, guys? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for... Bearing through all of our uh, musings and ramblings about dinosaurs, which we love, and we hope you love them too. And if you don't love them, leave us feedback about why you don't, and we will address it, and we will see if we can get you to love them. And we hope we've given you at least a little bit of information to chew on and other ways to follow up with uh, exploring dinosaurs more as a topical matter. There's one piece of follow-up that I forgot to share earlier, and that is we have one confirmed report of somebody watching Firefly on our recommendation. Yes. So in similar manner, we will be throwing links to all these articles and 
the different Netflix and Hulu available things that they mentioned that I will also need to watch. All those links will be in the show notes at betterworlds.net slash podcast slash four. And you can find us on Twitter at betterworldsnet. And you can email us at feedback at betterworlds.net. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. They're good dinosaurs, Brent. <laughs>